We're going to continue worship with a scripture reading from Mark 13. Steve's been doing a series on Mark that I'm picking up with again, and I landed chapter 13. You'll hear later why I'm so particularly thrilled about this chapter. That's sarcasm. Americans can do sarcasm, huh? Yeah. So it says selections from Mark 13. When you look at your order of service, which half of it is Mark 13, I promise I did leave some things out, but it's really hard to pick. So listen for God's word. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. But... When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Someone on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. Someone in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days, there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, no, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four corners, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But about that day, or hour, no one knows Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. 
Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn. Or else he might find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Speaking of keeping awake, are you all awake after that incredibly long reading? You okay? So I strongly dislike this text. Wars, famines, earthquakes, suffering, unlike anything seen before, this is but the beginning of birth pains. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. In Greek it says the stars will literally fling themselves from the heavens. Oh joy, Jesus is coming back. It's going to be fun. You don't have war, famines, earthquakes at your parties? Did I mention I really don't like this text? It's disturbing. Jesus comes back in what seems to be a militaristic leader, and suffering seems to be the result. I'm also not crazy about a verse that I left out, but I'll mention anyway from um, Mark 13, verse 10. It says, The good news must first be preached to all the nations. Let me explain why I don't like this as my complaining continues. And you have to listen, sorry. In university, I was an eager 20-year-old who wanted to be a missionary for Jesus. So I took a course called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement from the local Bible church. I sat in a cushy seat, not a pew with doors, on the first night. And they showed me a map of unreached people groups. And they threw this verse in my face. You have to make sure the gospel is literally proclaimed to all nations or Jesus ain't coming back. It's all up to you. Feeling the salvation of the world on my shoulders with maybe very little understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, I left the class absolutely petrified. If Jesus didn't come back, There was going to be more and more suffering. And if I didn't talk to the person next to me on the bus about Jesus and get them on my side, um, then, then he wouldn't come back and it would be all my fault. I was in a proselytizing panic. None of this, they'll know we are Christians by our love, malarkey. I had soul saving to do. I had to talk to everyone in class because Jesus was impatiently waiting on me before he could return. I do believe this is the stage where I made with iron-on letters and proudly wore a purple kid-sized t-shirt that said, Jesus rocks. But no matter how annoyed I might be with this text, that does not exempt me from preaching it. In fact, it probably means that I really need to. Amy Planting Paul, a professor of theology at Louisville Seminary in America, discusses how her Bible study dealt with really difficult texts. She says, It's perplexing that the Bible, which is supposed to guide our faith and practice as Christians, should contain difficult texts. Shouldn't a trustworthy, 
guide remove difficulties instead of putting them in our path? My class rejected two easy ways out of this perplexity. One easy way is to say that if we find a biblical text troubling, the problem is with us. If we were wise or faithful enough, all our difficulties would vanish. To a sufficiently mature believer, there are no troubling texts. But this approach goes against Christian experience and the witness of the confessions. As the Westminster Confession puts it, all things in Scripture are not alike, plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Another easy way is to say that if we find a text difficult, the problem is with the Bible. If our contemporary spiritual sensibilities are the only real guide to faith and practice, then when certain scripture texts give us problems, we can safely set them aside. We can keep them out of lectionary cycles, out of the pulpit, and skip over them in Bible study groups and private devotions. But writing off or avoiding troubling texts mocks our claims about the authority of Scripture over our lives. Rejecting these easy solutions left my class confronting the passages that disturb, puzzle, even wound us. But we found, like Jacob, in his wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32, that even these texts yield blessings. So let the wrestling with this text begin. Get ready. We're going to look at this whole concept of how Jesus is seen to return in this text and how the people of God respond. We're also going to look at the apparent violence found in many interpretations of this text, including among Jesus' contemporaries. And then we'll look at the actual questions asked by Jesus' disciples. When will the end be? What will be the sign? And finally... We'll look at how we're to live as a result of hopefully being more blessed than wounded by this text this morning. When I read this text, what makes me most put off is not what's in the text, but like I described for my perspectives class, it's how this text has been used. Sometimes termed the little apocalypse, this text is often used by people, sadly from my part of the world very often, who would like to say things like, Aha! Another earthquake! Jesus is coming! Hallelujah! Or oil spill, no worries. The worst it gets, the sooner Jesus will whisk us all away and leave everyone else to suffer. This is what I like to call radical escapism. In the world, but not of it, is its favorite taken-out-of-context Bible verse. Apocalypse Now is its favorite movie, and you can bet the bumper sticker on its car reads, In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. But if I've learned anything from Scripture, other than the fact that First Chronicles is actually in the Old and not New Testament, I've learned that the God experienced as spirit hovering over the waters of creation, the God of Abraham and Sarah, the God most fully realized in Jesus Christ, is not at all radically escapist. God is radically incarnational. And so this apocalyptic text of suffering and despair is not about how Christians are free from it. And it's also not about an angry, wrathful God who lusts for the destruction of the unbelieving. 
Actually, in Jesus' time, the destruction mentioned would have most likely been referring to the Jews' disastrous war with, the, with Rome from 67 to 70 AD, resulting in the destruction of the temple. And so this would be heard as the promise of a Messiah who brings an end to oppression, the freedom of a people, and a cosmic victory. When Christ's coming is equated with judging only individual souls and having nothing to say to systems of power or oppression, this is far from the type of return described in this text. Returning to Amy planting a pal's Bible study, this is wrestled with when she explains, My class is also worried about the way Jesus Christ is portrayed in many contemporary end-of-time scenarios. No more Mr. Nice Guy, as one class member put it. The earthly Jesus was kind to children and outcasts, refused revenge against his enemies, and accepted death. But these scenarios suggest that when Jesus returns with great power and glory, he will achieve his ends through merciless violence, punishing and destroying all who stand in his way. My class instead affirmed that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ set the framework for what we hope for when he comes again. As biblical scholar Susan Garrett asserts, at the end, Christ will wield not the power of death to vaporize all who oppose him, but the life-giving power of God. Through Christ, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. We desperately need to hear this. I desperately need to hear this. When we lose wonderful people like Morris this week, we need to know that there's a time coming when there will be no death, no pain, no tears. My pastor friend, Marcy Glass, and I were discussing this text via Facebook And she said that she absolutely loved Mark 13, and I, obviously not liking it very much, asked her why. She said, what I love about Mark 13 is how there is good news spoken in completely horrifying language. The beginning of the birth pangs is key for me, because while birth pangs are no fun at all, you don't have them unless you're about to give birth. And that is good news. Okay, maybe I don't dislike this text quite as much. This is similar to what we heard earlier, this idea that the power Christ wields when he returns is life-giving, not life-taking power. It is creative and recreated power to make all things new, even overcoming death. Naturally, this reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Beginning to worry, I'm incapable of preaching a sermon without mentioning Lord of the Rings, but here we go. Kind of like Steve in the World Cup, actually. Anyway, in Return of the King, Pippin is overcome by war and destruction. And he says to Gandalf, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf replies, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and turns to silver glass. 
and then you see it. Pippin, desperate to hear, says, what? What do you see? Gandalf responds, white shores, and beyond a far green country and a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that's not too bad. Gandalf replies, no, it's not. Birth pangs signal a beginning, not an ending. Now let's turn to the questions that prompted Jesus's a little over-the-top response to his disciples. Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? I think they might have been expecting a nice, tidy answer like next Tuesday, but they were disappointed. This is Jesus. He loves metaphor, poetic language, and parables. No simple, direct answers from him. He wants people to think, to be alert. If he had wanted them to know an exact date and time, I imagine he would have told them. But he didn't. What he did do was paint a picture of suffering and violence at the end of time that's caused by war and environmental disaster. Jesus did not give them a simple answer. In fact, he warned them about those people peddling simple answers. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. There are some things we are not meant to know. And this text says that about the day no one knows, not even the angels, curiously not even the Son, but only the Father. But this doesn't mean we are to absently disengage with the world and ignore the reality of Christ returning. We are to be alert. And this text gets us into how we might be wounded or blessed, affected by this text in our daily living. We are to be alert, to be awake, to be as radically incarnate in this world as God is. Jesus exhorts his followers to keep alert and awake four times in this text. We are to claim the resurrection hope of God's of Christ's return in glory. And in doing so, we are also to proclaim the glory of God's reign on earth even now. And not by wearing Jesus Rocks t-shirts, people. We are to proclaim that reign as Christ did. By preaching good news to the oppressed, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming freedom to the captives and release to the prisoners, comforting those who mourn, announcing the favor of God. Hearing one last time from Amy, she says that Jesus is not advocating an anxious preoccupation with signs of the end time. We are to plunge into the struggles and joys of this life as servants who are faithful while the master is away. Jesus' message in Mark 13 is not that nothing in this world matters, but it changes our view about what does matter. We are not to be like the sleepy, complacent Laodiceans of Revelation 3.17, 
who say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Instead, we are to live lives of anticipation, watching and waiting for God's coming reign. Okay, maybe this text isn't so bad. In fact, maybe it is good news in horrifying language. News that this is only a beginning. That in the cosmic plan of God, Jesus will return to make all things new. To birth a new reality of justice, freedom, and hope. In the meantime, in the waiting, let's not despair or disengage. Let's be alert Be awake to what God is already doing through and among us. And have eager expectation for what is coming next. As we gather at the table today, as we live our lives in every bit of their joy and their suffering, let's boldly proclaim, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.